So Money Episode 306, Jenna Ricker. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi, in so much awe of today's guest. She is a producer and director of notable films, including Ben's Plan, and now most recently, The American Side. Jenna Ricker is here, a graduate of the NYU Tisch School of the Arts, winner, recipient of the Miranair Award for Rising Female Filmmaker. Her latest film, The American Side, was hailed by The Hollywood Reporter as an adrenaline-charged pop noir mystery. Grab your popcorn and jujubes, folks. Her film will hit theaters next spring. And to expand its release, she and her team have launched a Kickstarter campaign. Go to somanypodcast.com to click on the link for that campaign to contribute as we have less than 48 hours left until that Kickstarter campaign closes. In our conversation, Jenna and I, we go back because, you know, we're, we're, we're pals, full disclosure, and we talk about... We get raw and real. We talk about the complexities of being a female director, her take on all of the discussion in Hollywood and beyond about giving women a greater voice in cinema. I mean, what do you do when no one's even inviting you into the club to have the conversation, let alone, you know, make the movie? The financial awakening that she had as a young child and later as a teenager that has stayed with her all these years and helped her afford a rich life on a budget while living in New York. All that and much more. Here is Jenna Rick. Jenna Ricker, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on the American side. I know it's been a long, long journey, and I can't wait to watch it in theaters next year. Congrats. Thank you so much. Uh, It has been a long journey. Uh, It's wonderful to be here with you to talk about it, and um, it has, but it's very exciting. It's going to be in theaters where... Yeah, I don't know if I'm old-fashioned, but I still think films belong, you know, need to be seen. Need so. to be seen, right? Not just on your on your iPhone, but actually right. in the big screen. And uh, so much I want to talk to you about from the making of the film to the Kickstarter campaign that you are uh, doing currently with your co-writer, Greg Stir, And also, there's so much chatter right now, good chatter, important chatter about women in Hollywood and beyond having mm-hmm. them take more control of the direction in Hollywood, in cinema. And as a female director, let's start there. As a female director, Jenna, you went to Tish. You knew this was going to be your career path. As far as being a woman in this space, in this sector, what did that mean to you? And and how did you embrace that? Uh, what Did you see this as a challenge or did you just see this as, um, a, in some ways, maybe a benefit because there are so few female uh, directors. It's almost a, great to be able to be so singular in that. I, that's the way I like to look at things. Maybe I'm just too optimistic, <laughs> but um, take us back to your journey and like how you got the interest and the, and the motivation and the encouragement to continue this path, given that it is sometimes a lonely path as a female in your role. Uh, what a great question. Um, yeah. So that, 
I'll start from the be the beginning of uh, making the decision to become a director. I, I came out to study uh, acting, actually, at Tisch School of the Arts, and I really did love storytelling. I wrote scripts when I was a little kid that hopefully are burned or put far, far away for nobody to read. Um, I'm sure your mother but... <laughs> has kept every page. I'm pretty sure. sure. I'm sure. Um, but I was always, always in love with it, and I... I would say even as a little kid, well, eventually I'm going to direct and produce, and I would say these big lofty things, but acting is what I was originally studying. And when I got to New York and I finished my education, as much as I loved acting, I did not have the same kind of fortitude. I mean, just the... I would see peers who would hit pound the pavement and I would rather be home writing a script that then I would pound the pavement for. So I, I quickly had to assess the fact that as much as I enjoyed certain aspects of storytelling, what I really loved was the notion of writing and directing. And so um, when I made that decision and that really, I skirted around it a little bit. Like I worked at production houses. I read, for script, I read scripts for production houses. I PA'd on a set here and there. And then I turned 30 and I remember very succinctly waking up that morning and saying, nobody's going to come and knock on your door and say, hey, Jenna Ricker, we hear you want to make a movie. Here you go. So I made a decision then to educate myself. Um, and I think the best way you do that, especially in something creative, is to roll up your sleeves and get in it. And, uh, and I decided to write and direct my first feature because if you're going to learn how to do it, you're just, just going to have to do, do it. it. <laughs> yeah. So I did it on a micro budget and I called in a lot of favors and I had, you know, filmmaking is a collaborative art, which is one of the greatest things about it. And it can help you not feel so alone. But I think directors, male or female, definitely find that there's a time when it is just you on set after everybody's gone away or just you in the editing suite. And it can be very, very lonely in that way and so uh and and so I, I think that that's across the board for for men and women but with um my first film what I found was sometimes when I would feel like I had I mean I was really I had no idea what distribution what that model was when you're finished a film I just thought well then somebody takes it out into the world or I had no idea about some of the processes and post like uh color correction that make your film look beautiful and you know the cost of money for titling and I mean all sorts of things and I, I really was blessed to have a lot of people uh, rooting for me and uh, pitching in and I I mean I had a top house post-production house offer to do my color correct for free I mean we're talking thousands of dollars and they said we have some time over the Christmas holiday if you want to bring it in and, and they wanted to help you because um I think I think they I personally feel like they wanted to help me because they saw somebody who was determined to do something and um and willing to do whatever it took to get that across the finish line and I think that some I think a lot of the times your best motivation for bringing people on board to collaborate with you is your own love and dedication to what you're doing not lip service, not I want to do this. That was a big piece of it too. I was amongst peers hearing them say, well, eventually I'm going to 
you know, do this with this script, or eventually I'm going to make that short film. It's not an easy process. But I kept hearing a lot of, I'm gonna. And I thought, well, we can just keep doing that forever. And certainly as a female filmmaker, I think it's, and I think it's true of, uh, of industries all over, it's going to be twice as hard for me or more. <laughs> right. I mean, you said earlier that no one's going to knock on your door and say, hey, Jenna Rickard, do you want to make a movie? And while that yeah. certainly doesn't happen ever, but I think it's particularly <laughs> more challenging for women. Like men, maybe male directors, maybe they do get that knock on the door sometimes. I mean, not that they, they not out of obscurity, not to discredit all the talented male, hardworking directors out there. But there was that article that you and I both read. New York Times Magazine did a piece on exactly what we're talking about, which is getting more of the female into the female story, into the female narrative, behind the scenes, in front of the camera, in Hollywood. Why is there such an opposition to this? It feels like there's an opposition. And I, it was written by Maureen Dowd. And she says that kind of leap from indie to blockbuster is almost exclusively reserved for young guys in baseball caps who remind older guys in baseball caps of themselves. And she's talking specifically about this young male director. I think he was like 35, debuted at Sundance, um, got major distribution for his film. And now three years later, he's directing uh, the new Star Wars. (laughs) Yeah, well, and before that, that Star Wars, he got the Jurassic World. Right, right. Yeah. I, I, I fast forwarded even more. Yeah, exactly. Right to the. So it wasn't just one. He wasn't just you know hit by the fairy once. He got it twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and then, and then they go on to talk more about just how women don't typically find themselves being appointed or even attracted to directing. Uh, quote unquote. I would say tentpole, blockbusters. Blockbuster, yeah, yeah like adventure. However, mm-hmm. your film, The American Side, is not beaches. It's not terms of endearment. It's not, right. you know, right. uh, it's it's a serious, very testosterone driven film, it feels. Can I say that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. I, when, when, um, it, as women, I, I just, you're going to, there's a different set of uh, standards placed on your work. And so the funny thing about my first film was about two brothers. So when that debuted at festivals, the question was always, how did, you know, your film reminds me of me and my brother. How did you write these guys so realistically? Which I thought was such an odd question. Um, And then the next with the American side, it was, you don't seem, you know, dark and mysterious. And this film is so layered and mysterious and twisty. How did you do it? I mean, did anybody ask Steven Spielberg? You don't seem like a like a dinosaur. How did you tell this movie about dinosaurs? You know, <laughs> how did you? How did your brain go there? Yeah, and not to mention that Terms of Endearment, which is one of my favorite films, is directed by a man. Nobody said to him exactly. Beaches how directed did you, by a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How how did you uh, tap into that side of you? Like it just the same questions basically aren't you know leveraged back the other way. But that said, it's um, it's interesting to to say to point out that you know even with that article, like the women in women in these roles behind behind the camera making these decisions, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden the content is going to shift to like a beaches, let's say, or to, 
And by it's the way, a, I loved Beaches. I loved yeah. Seasons of Endearment. They did very well commercially, those movies. Okay. And I love them too. And I, I make a quote <laughs> terms of endearment to you. In fact, my father gave me the soundtrack of that movie when I was a kid because I was so upset they wouldn't let me see it. I was far too young, but I didn't know at the time. And I, I was fixated on it. And so he gave me my first soundtrack ever. And before the music and that starts on the soundtrack, they play little snippets of the movie. So I had imagined that whole movie in my head well before I saw it. And then that started like a whole love affair. You know, kids would go by the, you know, the latest band and I'd be getting like soundtracks. I was such a geek. But, um, <laughs> but you know, movies are, are super powerful and they don't, they, they're not a necessarily an extension of the sexual identity of the person telling it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think, I yeah, think that's, I think that's, that's fair to say. I didn't, I, I, I referenced speeches in terms of endearment only because they were mentioned also in that article and in the context of, Oh my gosh, if we let women run Hollywood, it's just going to be a real crying fest, you know, yeah. where all their movies are going to be about crying and there's not going to be any sex. And even if there is sex, there's going to be crying after sex. And, <laughs> and then yeah. I looked up beaches in terms of endearment and both were male directed. So it's like, what are you even talking about? You know, yeah, um, it's, it's sad because there's a real, there's a truly institutionalized, deep, deep seated um, dynamic at play. And again, it's not just in the film world or in the entertainment industry. You know, we, we know it's true of, of so many industries where the men advance at a quicker rate, at a more exponentially larger arc um, than women often are. The opportunities are presented to them. Uh, sooner sometimes. So it's, it really isn't just the film industry, but I think what's happening or what's frustrating is you're really seeing these phenomenal female directors not even get in the room. Like, you're not even inviting me to tell you what I think I can do with Star Wars. Which you is made why, the decision. You, yeah. yeah, you just have to take it. You have to make your own room. You've got yes. to make your own meeting. And mm-hmm. going back to the American side, because I, I love this movie so much and I want to help you and your team raise money, you're, you're going to Kickstarter to raise money to expand the distribution next year. Another sign of how the industry is changing, at least in terms yes. of the financing. So tell me a little bit about that because you now have done two films. The first film... Ben's plan that was in 2007 and now the American side in 2014 soon to be widely released in 2016 how how, financing wise how are they different and how is Kickstarter working for you that's a great great stuff um you know the first film was absolutely a micro budget in fact when I did get asked about distribution I sat in my attorney's office not not my attorney then because I couldn't afford it but um I asked him, what does it take for distribution? And when they told me, there's this, there's this thing called deliverables, and it's all this technical spec stuff that theaters and foreign sales and all these people need to show your film. And lots of paperwork, lots of legalities, lots of hard costs. And when he told me how much that cost, it was like three times what I'd made Ben's plan for. Mm. So I decided to, um, and this is before the digital, this is just before the digital market really starts to have its way and introduce itself as a contender. So that was uh, 
my first experience with that. So when I made, when I got to the American side, I, I truly believe that as a filmmaker, this is what works for me, I guess I should contextualize. I'm a small business owner. I'm on spec. I'm creating something nobody's asking me to create. You know, the world isn't saying, God, we really need a movie about a deadbeat detective stumbling into conspiracy of Nikola Tesla, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, great. I have that. You've read my you. mind. You've been in my head <laughs> yeah. all these years. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm an on spec. I'm a speculator, I guess. Right. And, um, and so I'm creating something that I'm hoping to sell in the world. Uh, and, and so I come at it as a small as if I was running a small business because I have a responsibility as an independent filmmaker and on a budget, this budget was 1.7 million, uh, in the scheme of what we were able to accomplish with 1.7. It's unbelievable. I think we've heard from everybody. You've got to be kidding me that that you made this movie on that budget. Um, I will say that's a lot to do with the stunning, stunning production value of, Buffalo, uh, New York, and Niagara Falls. Um, but what I found is that I was seeking, I mean, you really are, you are, you're going to dinners, you're going to meetings, you're throwing parties. You are all of a sudden creating real faces to your investment that the studio films don't have. They have, you know, shareholders, nameless funds that are pouring in endless amounts of money. But as an independent filmmaker, you don't. I mean, you are shaking the hand of the very person who's going to write that check for you, and you're going to keep them abreast of everything you're doing throughout the whole entire process. And then you want to be able to turn to them at the end and say, thank you for taking a chance on me. This is your return. Well, I think, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to upset anybody <laughs> or I don't want to um, – uh, have a reality check with anybody, but independent film is very difficult to see a reward, uh, a return on because, um, when a distrib- distributor gets involved, whatever they buy the film for, and those big days where somebody made a million dollar picture and Harvey Weinstein swooped in and bought it for 10 million are a long gone. That just does not happen. And, um, so, so that, when that film gets bought, you're looking at that amount of money, it's called an advance or a minimum guarantee, to pay back your investors. Well, those have increasingly become smaller as the budgets have become smaller. And it's very hard to find out what that budget number is that can help your investors see return just on the purchase of the film. So some of the things you do as a filmmaker, I do as a filmmaker, is added value pieces. You look at your cast how can your cast fit in the world that you want them to fit in? You know, not throw your viewer out, um, but but also add, have a marketability that can can draw attention. How can your story have a marketability that draws attention? Um, and I don't think of any of these things as um, selling out, or I'm not sure what the word would be. I think of them as very being very smart about your business because you're in. The, I'm in the business to make more movies ultimately, so I have to be responsible to that. I, I I can't just take your money and say, yeah. And then I thought, you know, I would finger paint this moment of the movie. Like <laughs> it's <laughs> the it's it's too much money, 
and too much time and talents of so many people to be irresponsible like that. So um, when I got to the distribution for this film, one of the things that we really tried to do from the beginning was keep our costs down. And we did come in um, on budget and on time, which is huge. And I'm very, very proud of the way the film looks and feels, and the response has been phenomenal. But when you go into the distribution market, theatrical releasing of films is a loss leader. But it is the only way that your film is recognized on the digital platforms. And I think that's a tricky thing that the distribution world is trying to figure out, actively trying to figure out how do they keep making money um, it, in this shifting paradigm. And, and one of the challenges is that filmmaking itself has become relatively easy, not necessarily better because people can buy a camera and make a film. That doesn't mean their films are better just because more people can do it. But the reality is, is more people can do it. The challenge is that the distribution side of it is still left to um, a kind of gatekeeper aspect. I need you to take my movie and take it out into the world. Um, and that's starting to change too. And I think more and more filmmakers, um, you see it if you go on Kickstarter, more and more filmmakers that we know are saying, listen, I want my film to have a life that, that allows my investors to see a return. And um, part of that is being actively involved in the distribution process, which is something we decided to do. We had wonderful offers from phenomenal labels and the label we're with, I, and I can't say who they are yet, but um, they, they are excellent. But independent film producers don't have the gobs of money that the studios do. And so they have to, you know, they really curate which films they take and they really love those films, which is great for a filmmaker, but they can only take it so far. And uh, for us, we've had interest all over the country for the film. So in order to facilitate that, we need to raise this extra money, um, which is what we're doing in this Kickstarter for. We need to raise this extra money not that doesn't put our investors behind and that allows us to get this film into markets where it can see a return that can come right back to our investors. Yeah, you got it. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the length of time it takes for a movie to go from inception uh, uh. to distribution and then some part of your life, I feel like. And yeah. you know, when you and I were kind of in the same boat, I was coming out with my book, you were doing mm. your movie, and you talk about loss leaders. I feel like books sometimes are loss leaders, but you need to do them sometimes in order to get to your next project and get known and get to elevate your platform so that you can get other opportunities. It's like one of the things you just have to do. Yeah. And, you know, with the cinema release too. So I'll say this, Ben's plan, my first film is a coming of age story. It's very uh, lovely little film. I don't know that that has to be seen in a movie theater. I'll be honest. I think that could live on a digital platform well. The American side is, you know, a noir-inspired mystery that involves Niagara Falls and a lot it's of crazy majestic. stuff. It's big. It's big. And you have a sound design where you feel like you're, you know, underneath Niagara Falls. There's things that are really powerful. And I think it, you do a disservice to the film for to to not put it in theaters in a limited capacity, and um, <clears throat> but that loss leader factor that you're talking about, you know that, that you're referring to too, is that 
nobody's going to seek out the next Jenna Ricker film. I'm not there yet. I would love to be there. That's the goal. But nobody's saying, oh, it's a Jenna Ricker film. She directed that. I know what that means. They don't have that reference yet. Mm -hmm. And so when you're flipping through on demand in your living room on a Saturday night and you see a film, you're going to look at who's in the cast, what's it about. So we have a wonderful cast. You know, we've got Greg Stewart, we've got Matthew Broderick, Robert Forster, Camilla Bell, Janine Garofalo. Yeah, we have a a really great um, cast. And um, so someone sees that and they'll say, well, why wasn't that in the theaters with that cast? You know, it's like it's a very double-edged sort. It has nothing to do with the quality of the film. It's only going to come down to the money of the distributors, what the distributors are able to to do. So for us, what's important for me and our investors and all the people who worked on this film and helped make it a reality is to be able to, you're not reviewed if you're not in the cinema. Right. So, so for you to be sitting there on a Saturday night flipping through and you see the American side and you either recognize it from a marquee or you can look up the review because it played in the theater. So the loss leader factor actually gives back, you know, it allows us actually to live powerfully in the digital world. So it's a very tricky uh, situation with distribution. And I think that we have to figure out a way to make theatrical release not as expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk more about money, specifically your money, if I may. Yeah, since we are on yes. the So Money podcast, so I'm I'm I could talk kidding. to you. More. I, this is this this is just the beginning of a conversation about filming and distribution and financing and women. But if I may, let's let's talk a little bit more about your financial philosophy, Jenna. Now, as a female director, a woman living in New York City, uh, raised in California, working in the industry, the the entertainment industry. What would you say is now your all-encapsulating financial philosophy? I think it stems back to something my dad said when I was a kid. And it is that as as a filmmaker living in New York City, it's not a, not a cheap place to live. Uh, and uh, essentially as a freelancer is my dad would say, said to me once, it was a very pivotal moment, he said, you need to understand the difference between want and need. And that sounds, maybe sounds a little harsh, but it was great because I'd never thought about those two words and what they... And what made him tell you, know, you that? Were you like begging him to buy you something? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's when I... Um, we went from having a lovely home and um, I don't remember ever thinking about money, and I was pretty young, to my father um, lost his job, and we eventually were like that, bankrupt and had to move out of our house and all sorts of stuff. And this happened when I was young enough to know that things were shifting, but maybe not understand the ins and outs of it at all. And after that, and then subsequently, a few years later, my parents divorced, I was working as a young kid to pay for things I needed, not, it wasn't discretionary. I wasn't babysitting so I could go to the movies with friends on Saturday night or buy the latest record. I was babysitting so I could pay for sports fees at school, um, any, anything and everything, you know, my college applications. So I think it happened somewhere in that 
11, 12 year old before I was starting to work, but when the reality of our life had shifted enough where I felt I really needed something and my dad was pointing out that it wasn't, it was more of a want than a need. And I actually can't remember what it was, but I sort of carry that with me because as an adult and as a freelancer where I have to really think about where this money is going because I had the next job, it's, you know, my, my livelihood is dependent on getting the next job. Um, is asking myself that, is this a want or a need? Because sometimes it's, it's a want and sometimes that's totally okay and I'm okay taking it and doing it. But, but playing with that, and I, and I even think that has affected my filmmaking. Like, I think our film looks great and way more than what the budget uh, should say it is. But part of it was thinking, how can we stretch, how can we really make this beautiful for what we have and it, it kind of constantly exists so I think my philosophy is a little bit of a little mixture of is it something I want or something I need and can I pay for it right now because I think that's a big big one for uh, for a freelancer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to I have to be able to actually do this I, I'm not gonna I don't want to carry debt, debt. yeah, yeah. You mentioned your upbringing, your dad losing his job, the bankruptcy, the house, the divorce. What was your greatest money memory? So there was your dad telling you about, you know, Jenna, there's wants and there's needs. But do you have a pivotal financial experience as a kid? Perhaps it was when you were working and the moment you saved up to buy for something important or watching your parents argue maybe it was over money. That was my story. Uh, you know, the first memory that comes to mind, and this may have been the beginning, like the tipping point for me, as I was going to the skating rink with a friend and I ran back inside the house uh, to ask for probably money to get something at the snack bar. And I remember my dad saying, okay, but you need to understand the money needs the money's coming from somewhere and it's just not going to you can't always just ask for it. It was something that was very and I think that was the beginning of the financial woes in our house. I just didn't know it yet because it was such a shock to me. We weren't spoiled. You know, I I didn't ask for money regularly. I'm sure the I'm sure I was prompted to run inside and ask for change for the snack bar. You know, I um but it was such a moment where I thought I was getting in trouble almost for asking for this. And it was very poignant for me because it was this, it was a shift. I could feel a sh something a, a changing, you know, something changing in our, in our family dynamic around money. But, uh, just moving forward from that, for me, I didn't question having to go to work. Um, as, as a teenager taking jobs, but what it did do for me, that, that sort of want-need thing, what it did for me is, is I very young, I wanted to make sure whatever I was doing to make money also made me happy. And I remember thinking, like when friends would say, yes, I'm going to do this job, and I would think, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. I'd never do that because I'd get bored. Like, you know, I, it was important <laughs> for me to make money, but but not, but I, I guess what I actively did was try to seek out things that I thought I had a good skill set for and that I could enjoy doing. So, and you were loved, a teacher, I know. Yeah. So, I think people might be curious like, 
as someone who is developing a film for years without really any income, what do you do to make money and pay the rent? So what were the work, what were the jobs that you had? So I, um, I taught theater uh, at a private school in New York City, um, which was great. I uh, tutored and, um, and then I would write, you know, treatments for things here and there. Um, but really I loved, I, I've always loved working with kids and, um, and being around that kind of creativity. So I would find that that was an area and, and that I, I did well there. So that was always an area that it was kind of a pleasure to be my day job, I guess. Um, and then I just was smart about that want needs thing. <laughs> I just would save and, you know, it means you're invited to dinner five nights a week. You pick one or right. things. You just have to be Pack very lunch. Good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's Making not glamorous, but then you well, can say I directed a film. That's the funny thing is that I, I do think that there's this idea that, um, it's glamorous making a film or some, you know, it's something and it's, it is so hard. I mean, you're talking about, you know, 16, 18 hour days, weeks on end. And that's just when you're in production, let alone the years it takes before to like raise that money and get people to believe in your project. And then the post, which is another year and change. It's, it's, so wonderful. I love it. I don't want to do anything else, but it's really, really hard. And, and you were saying earlier, because a lot of people don't understand maybe how long it takes. And to that end, it is like a small business. I mean, you have, you are maintaining people's excitement and motivation to keep pushing forward and, you know, trying to get your, everything to a place where you can present it as, an option for people and it's, it's it's a lot of work. What would you say is your number one financial failure? We all have them. Okay, let's we're yeah. being real now. What's a what would kind of go into that folder? <laughs> That's a great um my biggest financial failure is well, I'll tell you my like big wake up call. I didn't have a credit card uh until I was I moved to New York and you know, these very clever credit card companies sit out in front of universities and they're like, hey, you need a credit card for spending? And so I signed up for an Amex and I didn't, I, I listen, nothing, nothing in the fine print did I read. <laughs> so. Right. All I, I knew was, was they were giving me some shot glasses and a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. I was signed up, baby. I was like, woo, this is great. <laughs> um, and I also didn't realize, for example, now I know, and I'm sure everybody else knew then, you know, Amex is you pay it off at the end of the month. And so learning the, it's not in my hand at the moment means I probably shouldn't be using it for credit. You know, I should probably shouldn't be swiping this card. That was, uh, my, my big fail, but I do, I do have to end the story with with a little joke because I got so freaked out about the debt I accrued and I called Amex and I was practically in tears about like, how could we come up with a payment plan? You're going to love this. And he said, um, it's only $1,300. Um, we have people with like 30 and $40,000 worth of debt. It's going to be okay, honey. I'm sure we can work this out. Wow. (laughs) But I was terrified at $1,300. So that was thankfully not a massive, um, hit to me, but it was definitely a, 
uh, eye-opener where I thought, okay, you have to have the money. You know, it's not, well, yes, in the grand scheme of debt in this country, $1,300 could be what I spend in, in a week, <laughs> like right. just on, if it's a, if it's a crazy week, uh, you had the wherewithal to actually be terrified at that. And so I, c- I consider that a failure and a success. <laughs> yeah, ultimately, right. It become, it became a success, but it was definitely, I was ter- I was so scared to make that phone call to Amex to figure out how to make it right. I was <laughs> terrified. What's but- your number one financial habit? Well, I'll tell you my my big financial habit is I paid at the top of the month. If I pay all my bills at the top of the month, uh, I can relax. And so you that's twenty nine more days to be happy. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly it. Um, and I know what I can, you know, what's my spending limit? You know, can I go to that dinner? Can I purchase this thing? You know, so I feel like get the get the goods done first, and then you know, look at your rest, look at the rest of your money as a, a, you know, what's discretionary, what's not. Um, so that's, that's a habit that, you know, ever since that credit card, my $1,300 worth of debt, um, (laughs) credit card debacle. Um, I'll let you be sad about that for a little bit, but honestly, that's (laughs) Not that well, huge. That, that was the joke. I mean, that's why the guy was like, young lady. Because I was like, right, I, I was right. so f***ed out. He was like, sweetheart. Like, tack on another zero or two, and now we're talking average American. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when he said it, I have to say, I was so young and so naive. I literally was like, what? How is that possible? But as then as I've grown up uh, more and realized, I mean, I get it. I really do. So um, in an effort to not to do my best to try to stay away from that, um, I do. I just pay my stuff um, at the top of the month, and I love it. And I do my online bills, and it's it's uh, a stress reliever. In terms of um, decompressing around stuff or keep staying motivated, I just I really think that the last person you should say no to is yourself. And I think that, and I when I say that, what I mean is as a creative person or as an entrepreneur, I guess, as a filmmaker, in a way, you, you very much are an entrepreneur. You're coming up with an idea you think everybody <laughs> is going to love. Um, you have to, uh, plenty of people are going to say no. So the last thing you should do is stop yourself. And that's what I, that was one of the motivating factors for my first film is everybody seemed to have a reason why that film they were going to make wasn't going to happen until, you know, everything fell into place or someone came to them with a gobs of money or whatever the scenario was. And I just thought, my God, you just stay in this circle forever and wish you'd done this thing or hope to do that thing. They just don't say no to yourself ever. Sometimes when I'm overwhelmed, I just think, hey, this is, this is a great place to be at. This is a great problem to have. Getting your film spread out into more theaters, what a great problem to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm going to help you with that problem. Um, Tim and I have uh, helped you back this, and we hope yes. that more will follow your Kickstarter campaign. We have the link over at somoneypodcast.com, and there's only a couple of days left where you can contribute. And we know that with Kickstarters, the last 48 hours are typically when you see a big rush. And we hope that uh, listeners out there, if you're interested in supporting a female-directed film that's uh, 
fantastic and just uh, really, like you said, needs to be seen cinematically. It's not something that you want to yeah. see on your small screen at home. You want to enjoy the experience. Jenna Ricker, thank you so much. It's been so fun to catch up with you. And I'll probably see you at the holidays. But uh, until then, good luck with the campaign and um, hope to have you back soon. Oh, thank you so much, Farnish. This was such a pleasure. I, I, um, I'm so inspired by you. So it was wonderful to be a part of, of what you're doing. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Jenna's Kickstarter campaign, head over to SoMoneyPodcast.com where we have the link that will lead you to it. And she's got lots of cool prizes depending on how much you contribute. And as I said, Tim and I have backed her film uh, and we're so proud of her. We can't wait for it to hit the, uh, the movie theaters in the spring. And as always, head over to SoMoneyPodcast.com if you want to grab the transcript, the comments to this episode and all previous episodes. And there also you can send me your question. Click on Ask Farnoosh and send away. And I will hopefully read it in an upcoming Friday episode and uh, give your question an answer. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money. <laughs>